And hopefully everything works tonight and goes live. I'm hoping to see the streams pop up here any second. So what will we see? Will they will they come up and go live? Huh. I'm not seeing anything happen yet. Let's pray that it does. Oh, I see it on Facebook. There it goes. That's good to know. Well, at least we're live on Facebook, so uh, we'll just keep going. And if I can't uh, get it anywhere else, I will have to re-upload it. So hopefully it's recording. Sorry for the interruption there. So this is the first time I've tried to uh, broadcast on a multi-stream. And uh, I do not see it broadcasting on YouTube, so I'm not sure what's going on there. Maybe it showed up somewhere else on the YouTube page. But today I'm with uh, David Douglas. Sorry, David. Uh, just trying to figure out where the stream is there for people to check out. And hopefully it shows up. But it looks like it's at least live on Facebook. So it looks like we have a little bit of a snafu going on there, unfortunately. So how are you doing this evening? I'm good. Thanks, man. How are you? I'm doing well, and it's good to have you on. You know, it's nothing like, uh, you know, 12 years. I mean, wow, it's been a long, long time since we started the the show. And you had caught a show I had done, what, nine about nine years ago, almost about a little over nine years ago, back in, or no, eight and a half years ago, back in 2011. Yep. And, uh, kind of set my life in a whole new direction. Well, that's good to hear. So, uh, you know, well, let's just dive in. It looks like people are going to only get the feed on Facebook. I'm not sure if it is, oh, it says that people are viewing it on YouTube. I'm not sure how that's working exactly. It shows five people on there, but I don't. I didn't see it going active on my side. So anyway, whatever. We'll we'll have to fix it later on and re-upload it if it doesn't go. Right on. So. So, uh, so. well, you know, you had seen a, an interview I did, ironically, on uh, the JRE or Joe Rogan Experience show. And when did you see that episode I had done? I'm pretty sure as soon as it came out, uh, at least, you know, late 2011, early 2012. Okay. So I did that show around July, late June, early July, 2011. It may have been July 11th or so, 2011. Yep. And, uh, you gave your email address out and I reached out to you. And you kind of helped give me a little bit of guidance. And then I spent until October of 2012 just researching things and trying to make the right choice before uh, going down to Mexico to get clean. And so, well, let's talk about this. So basically, on the Joe Rogan show, I had talked about a psychedelic drug called Iboga, or I, you know, which the extract is called Ibogaine. Yep. that uh, somehow stops and interrupts opiate addiction. And when you come off of the experience, there is no withdrawal from the opiates, which would typically last a week or two. And then there is no uh, craving for it as well. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, 
you know, I can't speak for everybody, but for me, there's still a very large adjustment period. Um, you know, it was really the first time since like 13 years old that I had gone sober. So yeah, it was a, a lot of, uh, I guess, sensory overload for quite a while after taking the Ibogaine. Yeah. So what I'm going to do, folks, sorry to interrupt you. I'm just going to try to post the link to the show uh, for people who are watching it live. I'm going to post the link to one of the groups to see if people can find it there. I do not see it coming up on YouTube, but it is broadcasting everywhere else. Uh Hopefully that works and they can at least get it there. We're also streaming live on Twitch right now, and we may be streaming live on Twitter as well. Uh, yes, we are streaming live on Twitter right now as well, so people can catch it there. So it looks like everything is streaming right now except for uh, YouTube. Not sure what's going on with that. Isn't that weird? Right. So anyway, we'll... Uh, quit with the discussion of the uh, technical snafu with YouTube. But um, so how long, or let's, let's discuss how you, what started off that got you addicted to opiates? I mean, like really addicted. It started with some stomach surgeries and, but I had always been into drugs pretty heavy leading up to that. But it was after that that they got me on the strongest stuff I had ever, the doctor gave me the strongest stuff I had ever been on. And, uh, I mean, I clearly remember taking that first 30 milligram Roxy and going, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. I want to feel this way forever. Uh-oh. What is and, Roxy? Uh, it's like pure Percocet, I guess. Oh, uh, no. Roxy cotton. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it was really off to the races from that first time. And how long were you addicted for? Like hard and heavy from 2005 until 2012, the end of 2012. And what and you had gotten on heavier and heavier opiates as you went along? Yeah, and the dose, definitely, because with opiates, you gain a tolerance, and you can take more and more and more as time goes on. Right. So, uh, you know, there's not too much that's stronger than Roxy. Um, it just got to where the amounts and the ways I was taking it changed. Okay, and did you eventually get to shooting up heroin? or? No, no, I stopped just shy of that. Just shy. Uh, Were you tempted to go that direction? Yeah. Yeah. Cause the cost of just snorting pills or smoking pills, it, it just gets expensive and you can save some money with needles, but I just couldn't bring myself to stick a needle in myself. There's, there's no way I can do that. Uh, and uh, so how far down did your life crash out? <laughs> Completely uh so totally... tell, tell tell us about that where where were you and what was the progression of it all you know what was your well, life mean, doing i've been a plumber for about 18 years so you know i've never never a huge living but a, a good living you know i'm able to make a good living and uh at the end 
you know, started off with a house and a family and then we split up and it went to a trailer and then to a shittier trailer and then to a camper. And uh, when I, you know, finally figured out something had to change, I was living in a tent at a campground down on the river here in Asheville because that's all I could afford. Some people are saying they are seeing the YouTube uh, feed, so apparently it's working good on that. Now, uh, Mr. Winters says, I found the best cure for opiates is true work on family, community, purpose, focusing, and working with those every day. And uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know... I don't, I don't know to tell you exactly what was missing or whatever from my life, but it took, I had to figure out who I was and figure out what I needed to be happy to get past all of that. <clears throat> there, I think people turn to opiates or drugs in general because there's something lacking in their life. Right. You know, fa- family's good. All of that's good, but unless you figure out your own mind, you're never going to stop the issue. I don't, I don't believe. And you had the kids after you got clean. I had my daughter before my daughter was six. When I got off opiates, that poor girl, the first six years, let's be honest, the first eight years of her life were rough. Were you taking her to, to camps and tents and stuff like that or what? No, um, I'd get her and like go take her to dinner and hang out with her and then take her back to her mom's. Uh, once I hit the point where I, I was in the tent, uh, except for summer break when she thought we were just hanging out and fishing to be fun, you know, she'd stay with me on summer, but the rest of the time she, you know, she was with her mom. Okay. So she didn't get much time with dad and, uh, no. Okay. Well, so how old were you, was she when uh, she started getting time with, with her father? Uh, I mean, eight or nine. Eight you or know, nine. So she yeah. lost all those years with you, essentially, right? I was there, but I don't think they count, you know. And I think I caused my daughter a lot of hardships and a lot of like developmental growth that she missed out on. Um, it, not just time, it cost a lot. The costs are, I'll never really know the true cost. And how is she today? She's awesome. And you, you Um, have 50, 50 custody now or. Yep. One week with her mom and one week with me. You know, from going to Mexico and being homeless, I am now a homeowner. So things have changed quite a bit over the years. And my wife is a really good woman and a great influence. And uh, thank you, Mr. Winters, for the uh, $50 donation just now. Much appreciate uh, the uh, contribution and the support. And, uh, so it looks like it did go live just on a different feed. So we found the the proper feed there. It's strange. I don't know why it didn't go where it was supposed to go. But uh, all right. So back in 2011, 
I go on the Joe Rogan experience. Talk about that. How did that hit you at first? You you had said we were we were conversing before the show, and you had said uh, you know that it was like some like tell, talk about what the experience was. So for me, when he went on that show, the only thing I heard was there's hope. Like maybe I'm a coward because I couldn't, <clears throat> excuse me, kick the drugs myself. I had, <clears throat> I had tried and I just wasn't strong enough. So to hear you talk about the Ibogaine and you broke it down logically and explained, you went into a lot of detail on it. And it, for the first time in quite a while, I thought maybe there was hope for someone like me. Now, I, <clears throat> back in a, <clears throat> about a year, about 14 months before I went on Joe Rogan's show, I had done an interview with Dr. Deborah Mash called Clean, Ibogaine Clean, and it was episode 76 back when it was the Gnostic Media Show. And... She's pretty much the world-leading expert on Ibogaine, and so she and I had discussed all of this, so I have to give her credit. And she was, <clears throat> excuse me, working, I believe, out of the University of uh, Miami, and she had the largest brain collection in the world and was studying brains for damage done by drug addiction and all of that. And we had a pretty good interview, and... Um, you know, in fact, the interview is almost two hours long. And so it was about, you know, like I said, 14 months after that, I'm going on the uh, Joe Rogan podcast, it was, which was episode 119. So that, you know, dates it. That's like over a thousand shows ago on, on his show. And, um, you know, so we, you know, it, I'll be honest, I haven't been friends with Rogan since that interview. That was the hands-down worst interview I've ever done. Rogan and I were friends for about eight years before that. And he interrupted the entire show to tell dick jokes and whatnot. And by the time I left his, you know, this was back when he was doing the show from his home. By the time I left, I was just like, you know what, this is, this is nonsense. And so, um, you know, it was, uh, it was quite the experience for me and, you know, and so I, I left it thinking how awful it was. And then I had over probably a thousand emails from his audience apologizing to me for his behavior during that episode. And he clearly didn't want me to say what I was saying during that episode. And that was when I started exposing that Gordon Wasson was uh, part of the CIA's MKUltra project, uh, subproject 58. And Joe Rogan, of course, became the poster boy for psychedelics for many years and really promoted them heavily to the public and not for a benefit like you had, curing opiate addiction but for bogus spirituality and you know things that I had started realizing doing extensive research that were totally false back in around 2009 2010 2011 and I had originally been you know thinking that psychedelics were the foundations of religion and as I 
uh, got deeper and deeper into the real uh, research, I realized that there was a whole lot of fakery going on and the research was bad. And I was going through interviewing all of the world leading psychedelic experts, professors and researchers from all over the world. And then I started checking all of their primary citations and began realizing most of them were, were fudging a lot of, of research. And I came out uh, from 2010, 11, and 12 doing an about-face and exposing it all. And uh, really brought a lot of trolls down on my head and whatnot for, for going about-face. So, you know, the one thing I've kind of always left an opening about was Ibogaine and the treatment of opiate addiction. I don't think anybody should go down to Africa and, you know, do Ibogaine or Iboga with the Bweedy tribe there and get your mind blasted. And, the, you know, another problem with uh, Iboga and Ibogaine is a lot of people die on it. Yeah, it's not a party drug. It's not a recreational thing. If you're wanting to do it, you have to do your research. You have to make sure you go somewhere with a legitimate medical staff on hand. Um, like when I was put on to Ibogaine, I was hooked up to an IV, a heart monitor, a blood pressure cuff. They made me go get EKGs beforehand. They did a full blood panel. To, you know, they, they went above and beyond to make sure that it was safe and you were okay. You definitely don't want to spend a tenth of the price and end up in some weirdo's basement where they just take you back across the border 10 hours later and say, good luck. Well, now there was a guy I, I was talking two years ago and I almost interview, interviewed him back in the day when all of this was going down. And if I recall, his name was Eric Taub, if that was his real name. And he ended up, uh, he set up an underground lab here in the U S somewhere. I, I think it was in the Bay area or somewhere. And he ended up killing two or three people. It's not hard to do. I mean, you know, not not everybody's body is the same. You have to make sure that you are physically sound enough to handle this experience. And if there's not a medical profession there, a professional there, just don't do it. Just leave. And by medical professional, do you mean doctor, nurse, both? I mean, there should be full All, support staff while you're going yeah, through that. And it's about a 24-hour ordeal, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you're, you're gone. You have to be somewhere. You can't get up and walk away once the, they induce the Ibogaine experience. So where I was at, they had multiple doctors and a nurse that never left your side. I had a nurse that was in the room with me at all times. Uh, and a couple psychotherapists that if you were having a hard time, they could come in and talk to you and, you know, you could, as best you can in that state, discuss what's happening in the moment. All right, so let's go there. Let's discuss okay. that state. So, I mean, there's a boat. You, you know it's starting because you hear, like, have you ever sat on one of those green electrical things that are out in people's yards and you hear that buzzing? There's like a mean... Green electrical mean, things. Not yeah, sure. like here in the south, we have these green boxes that are in, like, every third yard. And they're electrical transformers. and they. Say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, transformer, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, you know the humming you can hear right. from that? You hear that in your ears. So I finally get calmed down, close my eyes, and I, it, 
feels, it looks, it sounds like you get shot into outer space. And I'm out there, and uh, a lot of people report having this, but there, I was there with this being. I don't know what it was. I never saw him. I know it was, I, I think it was a male. It seemed like a male. It sounded like a male. And he was there to guide me through my experience. And the so, theme so, of my, Go ahead. No, go ahead. What were you I was ask? just going to ask you, so, you know, what are the details of this experience? Doesn't it force you to look back at your life and, and self-reflect? Yeah, that's, it's horrifically introspective. And horrifically, uh, that's, that's, that puts it in context, horrifically introspective. So it's going to make you analyze every detail that you hate about yourself, essentially. Yes. And yes. And no, at the same time. Uh, uh, so like the theme of my experience was, no, I'm a horrible person. I'm destined to keep living these stupid mistakes. I'm never going to get out of this rut on and on and on. And he kept going, wait, you're not that bad. Let me go show you what bad people were like. And we'd go back in time and see some of the most horrific acts of humanity. And they, the saying would go, they forgave themselves. They found peace. You're not them. And we keep coming, going from that like time travel thing back to just sitting in, I don't know what to describe it, but outer space. So I, I, I mean, I, and maybe I have the chronological order wrong, but at one point he goes, all right, I want you to picture the absolute worst thing you have ever done. Just imagine it, replay it in your head. So I, I pull it up and as I'm pulling it up, I can feel something get pulled out of my head and he drops this black cube of like just death and kicks it away and says, it's gone. I never want to hear about it again. Now let's think of something worse. Yeah. And I had to go back and think of all of the most like horrible, shitty, crappy things I had done to people. And he just pulled out of my head and go, it's gone and just never speak of it again. And for me, that was the biggest thing, like finding that self-forgiveness and that self-love that I discovered through that process. That was more important than anything for me. It sounds like you found Jesus. I mean, I, I remember asking him if he was God, if he was Jesus, and he laughed at me and said, you can't possibly understand what I am. And that was the only time it was discussed, that nothing else was said about that. All right. So, and oh, go ahead. Uh, whatever it was, like, I've never felt love like that before. Like, there, he wasn't there to torture me. He wasn't there for anything. He was just there to help guide me and help find my peace. Um. But it also wasn't that quick. It wasn't like I came out of the trip and it was just freaking rainbows and unicorns. Uh, it was hard, man. The first two years were, I'd never, I'd never want to go back and live those two years of my life again. What were those first two years like? The deepest, darkest depression you can ever imagine. And uh, I managed to hide it for about 14 months. And then, man, it was this depression that hit me to where I couldn't get off the sofa. There was no, like, suck it up and go to work. I, 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 
I couldn't get up and face the world. Had it not been for a couple really good friends that wouldn't leave me alone and wouldn't go away and eventually drug me in to go see a professional. Like, I don't know that I made it through those first two years or without my mom. I mean, my mom was huge in those first two years. Uh, the, the depressed, like I literally laid on my sofa for so long that I ended up with a staph infection in my leg months, wow. like two months of, not showering, barely eating, just, it took all I had to do just to keep breathing. And so do you attribute the depression to the Ibogaine or? No, I contribute it to starting drugs so young. And I, I, I really feel like specifically psychedelics so young right. that, uh, I never learned how to cope with anything. So I didn't know what to do. And I was just stuck in this like pattern of fear for lack of a better word. Uh, I, I just, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to feel. I didn't know what all those feelings were. Um, I just wasn't ready for the real world on my own. All right, so you're leaving this, uh, <clears throat> or didn't you work at the clinic for a while afterward? I, I did. Like, once I got clean, I kind of quit the trades, and I was like, I'm going to save the world, man. And I went and got a social services degree and a substance abuse uh, degree here in North Carolina, a substance abuse license, and uh, started working with the clinic. And I love this place with all my heart but I was more of a used car salesman and <laughs> that's just not me. I'm just not that charming of a guy, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, you're a former opiate addict or former junkie. And I mean, how do you sell that in a rosy way? You know, Hey, we're going to, we're going to kick your ass into gear, you know, right? and, and well, it's for- not going to be pretty. And you have to keep reliving those emotions with the people that you're trying to help. Like you need a lot more sobriety than six, eight months a year to try and help people. You can't be less, in my opinion, less than like five to 10 years clean if you want to help somebody. Really? Is that, is that something you would consider going back to now or you're just totally done with it? I'm not that nice of a guy. Um, (laughs) You got to, you know, that's, that's a good thing considering nice actually means stupid or foolish. So that's probably a good thing. You're not that nice. Right. You have to be, you have to have a certain level of compassion that I just don't feel that I have to really throw my emotions and my mind into trying to, because you have to take on those other people's problems. Like you have to actually feel their emotions if you're going to help somebody. And, uh, I just like being a plumber better than I like dealing with all that. Just, uh, you know, somebody in the audience seeking truth in Christ says that he suffered from severe, severe depression too. severe boy, three times. And the medications helped a bit, but then, uh, he felt more depressed. Did you have to go on medications for the depression and whatnot? I did. I went on, uh, 
I want to say it was like 75 or 100 milligram dose of Wellbutrin, basically the lowest dose that they offer. And were you afraid to go on any any drugs considering your prior experiences? Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I refused. Um, and I, I did my, I'm, I don't like to just trust other people. So I like to do my own research and I'm no doctor by any means. But all those SSRIs and mood stabilizers, they really scared me. Yeah. And from everything for good that reason. I had, right. And everything that I had read after opiates, you're lacking in dopamine, which is what Wellbutrin helps with to the best of my understanding. And I really found that that low dose Wellbutrin was enough that I could get out of the bed and face the day. Um, I've been off it for about two years now. I just didn't feel the need to keep taking it. Uh, and it's amazing when you actually turn your life around and you are living, I know it sounds so cheesy, but like living your best life, like doing what you're supposed to do and reaping the benefits of hard work. It's amazing how your stability can change. Right. So going from a totally fallen state, living in a tent, to owning a home, working solidly, having uh, now... Not just working solidly. I got my plumbing license and I'm my own boss now. Right. It's great. Like life really can be good when you do the right things. And now you're you're remarried, correct? Mm -hmm. and, yep. and you have a new baby, is that correct? I have a one-year-old son and a two-year-old son. So that's got to be pretty, uh, pretty big. So now you have three kids, and what a, what is their life like compared to your daughter's? Uh, completely different. They've got a dad that's home at the end of every day that's not. I mean, when you get strung out like that, like you're down to like a reptilian level those drugs take over everything. Like your hunter gather needs are fulfilled by drugs. So my daughter, I was there, but I wasn't there. My boys, I'm here, man. I'm not worried about getting high. I'm not worried about going out. Like I went out during the day. I did my job. Now I'm home with you. And my job is to make y'all boys into men. And it's, I take that very seriously. And I, you know, I take making my, helping my daughter become a woman very seriously as well. Is your daughter, uh, spiteful at all, considering that the boys get, you know, different, uh, treatment? No, no. She is the best big sister. I really feel like being here and being around her brothers, watching them grow up instead of being spiteful, she's a good enough person that she's been able to absorb the experiences she missed and help fill in the pieces that were missing for herself. Now, going back, had you not heard that Joe Rogan show with me on it, do you think you would have been able to get clean? No. No, I wouldn't be talking to you. I'd be another number that overdosed and died. You, th you really think that you would have killed, overdosed? Yeah, not, not like I wouldn't have killed myself, but man, do you know how many, all of the, not all, that's an exaggeration, but so many of the people that I used to run with are dead. And I've always been an extremist. I always dive, I, I, I always took, I always take things too far. 
and I was well on the path to just taking one too many, and that would have been a wrap. Um, I had tried twice before to get clean and just uh, the the withdrawals, what the vomiting and all of that. The withdrawal, the pain, man. I know they say it's not real pain, but damn if it don't feel like your bones are breaking from the inside out. Really? Yeah, the, I've never felt pain like the pain of being dope sick. I, I hear people say, oh, it's just like the flu, blah, blah, blah. Man, it wasn't just like the flu for me. I've had the flu before. It, it's <laughs> nothing like being dope sick. So, and I, I mean, my entire life from 12 years old was drugs. Wow. That, that early, what, what, what got you started into drugs? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. All I know is from a child. Like I remember, uh, I got my tonsils out and they gave me pain medicine, man. And I remember going, Oh, this is, this is how you should live life. This is, this is the where it's at. Um, you know, I started with weed and then acid and Coke and ketamine and speed and ecstasy. And, you know, I think I was 14 when I first, I was 12 when I first smoked weed, 13 the first time I did acid. And I, I want to say it was like 14 started with Coke and meth and ketamine and, my entire life revolved around just staying high. And I, I mean, I went from 13 to 30 being high on something every single day of my life. And, you know, and then you look back and you think, where did those years go? Right. Right. And and you I, can't remember much from that time either. Right. I remember some, I just look back and see the wreckage. Like my life was way harder than it had to have been. And I've always, I was my own worst enemy. I really don't know where all that anger and hatred came from, but man, it, uh, it ruled my life for a long time. Yeah. This, uh, person who cares says I live in a medical cannabis state and I'm a card holder. I started, adding a very small amount of, of THC too, you know, and, and then he goes on about hemp seed oil and whatnot. And I was part of the, uh, California hemp initiative and part of getting uh, hemp seed legalized for food use and all of that. And I don't do any of that stuff anymore. I mean, I'll put, you know, hemp seed on my salad or something sometime, but there isn't really uh, much positive that comes out of any of that stuff. And, you know, for those of you who take medical marijuana, and I don't care if it's CBD or THC or, you know, whatever, most of the problems are caused by poor diet. And I also found that just as many of the things that cannabis treats it causes, you know, like if you, if you're taking it for anxiety, you can find dozens, if not hundreds of studies that show that it causes anxiety, you know, and 
you know, so when you get away from that stuff and start eating healthily, going on a high fat diet, get grains out of your diet, get sugar out of your diet, etc., and all of these things start reversing, you you discover that you don't need any of it. Now you had, you know, gone into the hospital for stomach surgery. So what was the stomach surgery for? I spent 15 years in and out of hospitals over a bad stomach, which I later discovered was due to uh, consuming wheat and grains. I I never got an answer as to what was causing the problems, but looking back, I feel like it was all the drugs, A, definitely all the drugs, and B, just tons of sugar in a shit diet. Uh, about, I don't know, three to six months ago, I gave up sugar. And that was probably the second most sick I've ever been next to trying to get off of opiates. Yeah, so uh, let's see. Benji says, you have to realize that we're in a spiritual battle, uh, good versus evil. Those people you were mad at can't help themselves. Once you realize it's the spirit that uh, made a home in them, you're free. You know, and it, you know, and it's like you were talking about getting rid of the the people, you know, getting that black thing out of you of people that you hurt, there was probably people that you were angry with as well. Oh, yeah. And that, that, yeah, once I figured out how to forgive them, and that helped get the knots out of my stomach, get the vibe, you know, it, it calmed my vibration down. Yeah, um, <laughs> it sounds like you, you know, it sounds like, you know, in a way you learned, uh, what the New Testament teaches without reading it yet. Oh, I've read the Bible. I oh, grew okay. up in a private, I grew up going to a private Baptist school down in South Florida. Oh, did you? Um, yeah, but they were more of the racist fire and brimstone ah. Baptists that kind of turned me away from it. Rather than they forgive and understand and live in truth and logos. Yeah, there is no forgive and forget with those people. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was crazy. So, you know, and then it's like, how do they live in such stark contradiction with what the Bible actually teaches? It's really easy to take what you want from any writing that's ever been written. You can spin anything to make it work your truth. Now, uh, just to let the audience know, we are simulcasting tonight for the first time between Facebook, uh, Twitch, Twitter, um, where else are we broadcasting, YouTube, etc. Steve Outram filed a bogus uh, claim against my primary channel. We had had it on for about six or eight shows, got it back on, and then I did that show a couple weeks ago with Jason Goodman. Uh, about social engineering, and uh, uh, Jason had shown a a web browser image of Steve's Facebook page that had a photo, and, and which is of you know falls under fair use when he publishes it. But he filed bogus copyright claims against both Jason and myself. So I will upload this show later to the primary channel. So, uh, obviously, this is Logos Media 2 for those of you viewing on YouTube. But uh, that's what happened. Steve Outram didn't like getting exposed for all of his crap. And he's got his LARPers and trolls and, you know, wannabes in there pounding the uh, thumbs down button. I mean, you know, 
what you know you just gotta laugh at these people i mean these guys are completely obsessed with me to spend years and years following me around and talking trash in the chat and thumbing down i mean you know what can you do i I can just pity these people you know and and Steve must have done something bad enough to where, you know, he, this multimillionaire who's worth probably 60, 70 million dollars, rather than chilling on a yacht in the Mediterranean, he trolls my page and files bogus claims and pays people to troll me and harass me and things like that. So, I mean, these people are, are psychopaths and losers, but what can you do? So, anyway, guys, thanks for uh, hitting the, the page and hitting the thumbs down. Love y'all. You know, and thanks to uh, you, all of you that aren't psychopaths who hit the thumbs up. Much appreciated. Much love to all of you as well. But um, anyway, uh, so Seeking Truth in Christ says the Bible says we can judge righteously, you know. So and that's another thing, too, is learning how to judge righteously. And what is righteously? Once you get that, that, uh, you know, you have to realize that when you make a judgment, it has to be done in truth, that you have all your facts, that you're not being a hypocrite, that you're doing doing it from a point of logos. And then you can understand what truth and righteousness means, you know, whereas, you know, if you're being a hypocrite and, you know, doing a lot of bad stuff or passing lies, making things up, that would be a failure of that. But anyway, so, uh, you know, what, you know, what I wanted this show to be with you, David, is inspiration for people. And may, I may even, I, I may even change the title later. I titled it Seven Years Clean. I may change it, you know, add something like getting off of kicking the opiate addiction or something like that. But there's even more than just the opiates. Like, I don't spend all day, every day high anymore the opiates were just the breaking point um and like i said i i don't try to point fingers or any of that i don't know what led me down to the road that i took but i know that there's a lot of people that are living the same way even if it's alcohol or whatever but there is hope and help and change out there that's the most important thing um we got to figure out how to get people lifted up and, and whatever this epidemic is in this country of loneliness and emptiness and people filling that void with garbage. Right. Well, you know, and I started this show, so this is episode one of year 12. I started the show interviewing all the world's leading psychedelic experts you know, and that's kind of the irony of it all, because I don't touch any of that stuff anymore. You know, people still think, you know, it, it boggles my mind how I've done hundreds of shows exposing how I was wrong and how all of that was MK Ultra, And there's still all of these people out there. I had somebody write me earlier today, well, your best work was, you know, your work that you did back in, uh, you know, in 2005 or whatever, you know, and not even acknowledging all of the heavy research that I've done to expose the CIA's MKUltra program along with the counterculture and in the promotion of psychedelics, which I termed suggestogens in 2014 because they cause hypersuggestion and make people so easily manipulatable for outside influence of others to, 
you know, be led into all of this fake pseudo shamanic spirituality and stuff like that, you know. So I've spent a, nearly a decade now peeling myself away from that and helping people understand what it was. So this is actually, David, like the first show I've done in years stating anything pro psychedelic, you know, and I haven't touched a show in, on Ibogaine for, for almost a decade now. You know, so, you know, and I told you I didn't want to make the show Ibogaine Focus. I know it was important for your treatment. Do you know of any other uh, ways that people can, you know, get clean? Because obviously Ibogaine isn't legal in the U.S. And obviously if you go to one of these underground clinics here, you may end up dead. And then on the yeah. other hand, you may end up dead from not doing it. Yeah, for sure don't go to an underground clinic. For sure, if... If this is the choice, and I I say if very strongly, you need to, you know, A, find a legitimate place, do your homework, all of that. You know, if someone wants to get clean the good old-fashioned way, then find a long-term rehab facility. 30 days, 90 days, that doesn't cut it. You need six months to a year removed from your setting to just focus on you and nothing else. And you have to be so selfish at that point in your life that you can't care about anybody else for a while. It's all about you, but in a positive way, you have to like really be ready to face some nasty, nasty truths and move forward. So what was the nastiest truth you faced about yourself? Are you willing to talk about it? I mean, I've done so much. I don't know what the one thing that was the worst that... Yeah, I'd rather just leave it as I've done some really bad stuff. And it's nothing... I mean, I, and a lot of it happened before I was 18, you yeah. know, when I was a very young man and I carried that guilt around for a long time. A lot of it just being a shitty person and right. thinking back like, oh my God, I actually did that. Like what? And the guilt that people don't realize how one small choice can end up being a ton of guilt on your back 10 years down the road. Um, just, I mean, there's too much to name. I was just a shitty, shitty human being, just a bad person. And I didn't care. I went so long only caring about being high. I didn't care who I heard in the process. And I mean, you can burn some bridges so bad that time alone won't let it heal. So do you ever, did you ever reach out to people to try to make amends? The ones that I could, yeah. And uh, be honest with you, I'd say a large percentage of them just told me to fuck off. <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 they didn't have care any, and I, I don't blame them. They didn't care about easing my conscience. Why would they? Right. You know, and so that's all stuff I have to deal with, and I have dealt with, and I've learned to let go. Um. One of the hardest things, man, is like being in this town where I got so strung out and then got clean is running into some of those people and the looks they give you, it just will like, 
man, it'll crush you. It's people don't forgive well. And, you know, I want them to see me for who I am now. And man, when you see someone look at you like a worthless junkie, it just, it crushes your soul. Right. And you're like, but wait, I did the Saul to Paul transformation here. See me now, not how I was when I was Saul. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? All I can do is just be me, keep doing my own thing. And man, being honest with yourself is more important than anything. The second you start lying to yourself, you're screwed. So if you're not taking an honest account daily of how you're living your life, man, you're going to end up in a dark place real fast. Right. Uh, And if you want to get clean, know that it's going to take a couple years. There is no, even Ibogaine is not an instant cure. It keeps you from being dope sick and all of that. But you still have to face like, what led you to this point? What were you hiding from? What were you... You know, uh, I don't remember who said it, but I heard someone say addiction happens for two reasons. You are trying to make up for something that happened to you that was bad, or you're trying to fill a hole where something that was supposed to be good never happened to you. So you got to figure out where is life gone that this is where you're at now. And that's, that can be a pretty nasty, at least for me, it was a nasty thing to face. And what do you say to, well, (laughs) what do you say to people out there who are young and and thinking about getting into drugs or people who have had surgery and getting on painkillers? There's better ways. There's, I mean, there's so many studies now that show Tylenol and Advil together are more effective for pain medication. Um, and I, I know you probably don't agree, but I'd almost tell, especially if it's a legal state, try some edible marijuana instead of an opiate. Um, you know, just find, find a different way. There's better ways than opiates. And as far as partying at this point in time, I mean, you gotta be about stupid to think that opiates are cool to just, and pardon i don't mean to sound so harsh but (laughs) at this point there's so much evidence like no that's not a party drug what what is a party drug you know well and and, go ahead in this day and age you might think you're getting a party drug but you're getting a bunch of like uh what's that new stuff called that's killing everybody uh fentanyl you, you know, you don't know what you're getting anymore. And what about the psychedelics? I mean, you know, that's that's a whole other thing. And, you know, it's like I remember going to my first Grateful Dead show and all of this crap. And then you realize later on the Grateful Dead or a bunch of government agents, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Uncle Sam playing in a rock and roll band. Right. And, 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 and selling drugs all over the country and destroying thousands and thousands and thousands of people's lives and then you got this phil lush character going around saying we got to ban guns now and it's like dude you single-handedly have been responsible for the death of you know how many tens of thousands of people that got hooked on your drugs and and you know i'm phil lush really but you know lush 
But uh, and these guys promote all of these drugs and then go out virtue signaling that we shouldn't be able to protect ourselves from socialists, you know? Right. Uh, look, man, whatever you're going to do, be your own person. Don't be a puppet. Think for yourself. I don't think psychedelics are meant to be taken with a bunch of strangers in a weird setting that you have no control in. I, I, I don't advocate for anybody to do it because I don't know what your mind's like. I don't know what right. any one person's mind's like. I mean, I guess... Well, and, and, and when you look at how... The CIA manufactured the pseudo-shamanic spirituality around it, which I wrote an article in Theogen's What's in a Name exposing that. I did an article, uh, Spies in Academic Clothing, showing how all of the academics who were promoting it were frauds and working for the CIA's MKUltra program, that the, the psychedelic counterculture itself was the actual MKUltra program, not this, you know, like the Man Manchurian candidate uh, search for the Manchurian candidate was like a small little thing about it, but then they throw that out to the public to make that look like that was the real MKUltra agenda. And then they, you know, publish all these books like, you know, Marty Lee's Acid Dreams, which is one of the worst books on MKUltra out there, telling, you know, telling people that LSD and the psychedelic drugs didn't actually hold any value for mind control. But when, once you grasp that the counterculture and the hypersexuality and the drugs and, you know, fornicating in, in the mud at Woodstock to your rock idols, you start getting the whole picture of what they were really doing. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, once you get that they're promoting rock idols or graven images through this stuff and that these rock stars are promoted as, you know, sort of Pied Pipers to le mislead youth, then you can see the whole big picture of it and how effective it really was. But if you go with this mindset that, oh, well, you know, uh, I'm going to regurgitate dumb crap like Marty Lee's book and Acid Dreams and claim that that uh, LSD and these drugs showed no value in mind control, all you have to do is point at a, a Grateful Dead show or a Dead End Company show these days and all of the wipeouts that show up at these concerts and dressed in their Grateful Dead uniform of tie-dye and, you know, dreadlocks and whatever. And, you know, every one of them is a uniform, and you can point at each one and how their life has been wiped out by these practices. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, a lot of that is why, like, I can't get a young helper to come to work because it's not cool. You know, that's, uh, it seems like, a, I know that's a jump. Well, well, that, well no, it's, like it's, all that it's, goes together. it's not at all because I've exposed so much the extended adolescence that's promoted through the sex, drug, rock and roll community, you know, and when you look at the millennials, you know, they're such, they're so wiped out, you know, even, you know, they, they think that intelligence is about you know, being pro-transgender or pro-gay marriage, not about working hard and not about, you know, getting your life together. You know, they, you know, they want to screw their lives off and not even get their mind around uh, what it is to have a family or build a life, build a home, build a, a company and buy do a car, buy a, a car. Right. 
You know, they it's just crazy. They just want to wipe out and think that they're cool by doing this sort of behavior, you know. And, you know, I went there. I would probably wasn't as deep into it as you. I was, you know, I I worked on the California Hemp Initiative. I worked to legalize industrial hemp and medical marijuana. And now I look back, you know, I sent uh, Chris Conrad an email a month or two ago, who was one of the guys that worked with Jack Hare. I, I threw dirt on Jack Hare's grave. We were friends for 18 years. He's the father of the hemp movement. But I sent Chris Conrad, who was, you know, he wrote Hemp Lifeline of the Future and, you know, Shattered Lives, Portraits of America's Drug War. And it's like, all right, Chris, so now we've got all these drugs decriminalized, we see hypodermic needles in the streets, feces everywhere, plague is on the rise, you know, and it's like he uses this spin. What about the shattered lives of all of the drugs? You know, and, and he's he's like, okay, well, these people had their lives ruined from being locked up in prison. And then there's the whole libertarian view that people who sell drugs should have the right to do it, and it's the taker's choice. But you know, the libertarian point of view is that they're not responsible for the families and the lives destroyed that they promoted these drugs to. You know, there is no responsibility downstream. It's like, you know, they want to promote pornography and it might destroy your marriage getting caught up in pornography. And then but, you know, there shouldn't be nobody should be responsible for that. It shouldn't be the purveyors of the drugs or the porn or whatever that have any responsibility for the you know, social damage caused to everyone else as a whole. And what about the kids that have to clean up, you know, the lives afterwards from the drug use or from this or from that? You know what I mean? Yeah, but where, where, when did the thing start getting so bad? Like, I mean, I, I, I vaguely remember the crack explosion down in South Florida in the 80s. Yeah, I was born in 82. Ricky Ross and yeah. Yeah, but like, how as a species how as a people because it's not just in this country it's worldwide like how have we ended up where everybody is just turning to drugs do you ever remember a time when there was so much addiction and just like the homeless and everything like where did all this come well, from well you know to me in looking back it's people don't grasp what you know, that Christ is someone who we're supposed to emulate in our lives to try to live perfectly. And then so religion is stepped on, and then communism is brought in, and all of this liberal ideology, oh, that old stuff, that's stupid, we don't need it in our lives. Uh, our ancestors were daft and, and mentally retarded for, for believing in these things and not getting that it's about living in truth. And then uh, what we see from there is a fall. We see a total cultural collapse. And, you know, there's a quote that I published in uh, my article in Theogen's What's in a Name. And let me just read this to you because it's, it's a conversation between um, Timothy Leary and Aldous Huxley. And Aldous Huxley was pretty much the key architect of MKUltra, Tim Leary admits that he was a CIA agent out there promoting all of these uh, these drugs. But, you know, so in this conversation, 
it says, uh, these are evolutionary matters. They can't be rushed. Work privately, initiate artists, writers, poets, jazz musicians, elegant courtesans, painters, rich bohemians, and they will initiate the intelligent rich. That's how everything of culture and beauty and philosophic freedom has been passed on. Your role is quite simple. Become a cheerleader for evolution. That's what I did in my grandfather before me. And he's referring to Thomas Henry Huxley, who is Darwin's uh, propaganda manager. And he says, these brain drugs mass produced in laboratories will bring about vast changes in society, which is what we're witnessing now. Thanks, Aldous. This will happen with or without you or me. All we can do is spread the word. The obstacle to this evolution, Timothy, is the Bible. Tim says, I don't remember any discussion of brain drugs in the Bible. Aldous, Timothy, have you forgotten the very first chapters of Genesis? Jovis says to Adam and Eve, I've built you this wonderful resort eastward of Eden. You can do anything you want, except you are forbidden to eat of the fruit of, tree of, of the tree of knowledge. Tim, the first controlled substances. Aldous Huxley, exactly. The Bible begins with food and drug prohibitions. Tim, so the fall and original sin were caused by the taking of illegal drugs. By this time, Aldous was chuckling away, very pleased with himself, and I was rolling on the floor with laughter. And that is from uh, Tim Leary's book, Flashbacks in a Conversation with Aldous Huxley, published 1983 and 1990, page 44. So, you know, that really lays it out, what they were really trying to do. I mean, here's the architect of the CIA's MKUltra program admitting that they're trying to wipe out society and get everybody to, to fall into this stuff. And then uh, there's a really good quote I like from Marlene DeRio. She was one of the people who promoted ayahuasca. And just before her death, she came out. I think she began regretting all of her promotion of this stuff. She was a uh, professor at Cal State Fullerton and... Uh, an anthropologist, and then went to work at psychiatry at, at UC Irvine. But, but she stated that psychedelic substances like ayahuasca create a state of hypersuggestibility in which persons are very open to being influenced by others. Many traditional cultures have utilized this condition to inculcate cultural values and behaviors in young people as they receive initiation into adulthood. In the West... Countercultural values can be inculcated in young people when using these psychedelics, especially when using them in an antinomian context. And then antinomian means of or relating to the view that Christians are released by grace from the obligation of observing the moral law. So, you know, these people lay it out, you know, so they're promoting drugs in the streets and they're promoting, you know, hypersexualization and fornicating in the mud to your rock idols at Woodstock and the Grateful Dead and all of this stuff. And then you roll forward and you can see, and it really also looks like, you know, we hit our peak as a culture back in the 1800s or maybe the 1700s, and we've been declining ever since then, you know, on a total uh, wipeout. In some ways I'd agree, but I think some ways we've gotten better. I mean, maybe definitely... some, but we at least got rid of slavery since then, if nothing else. Sure. To, you to know. a point. 
to a point. I know that's a loaded conversation. Well, yeah, but, and that's uh, that's a whole other uh, different ball of wax there that you're going into. And then what we saw with that is, you know, the North uh, ending slavery in the South to bring all of the slaves into the into the new uh, industrial factories in the North, and you know, and that was a whole other thing. But you right. know, I think slavery would have ended there anyway because with the Industrial Revolution, it didn't work anymore. You think maybe part of the problem too is life is just too dang easy now and we got a bunch of just soft ass people that don't know how to handle a little bit of cold or a little bit of weight or you know a, a you know a joke that they disagree with or anything else you have these safe zones and soy boys and all of this stuff now men are not men anymore women are yeah. me, women are busy That's trying ridiculous. to yeah women are trying to be men and all of the feminist stuff has wiped out the family too, Gloria Steinem and all of these people. So, you know, and this is what I've tried to expose for the last 10 years and how it surrounds the psychedelic counterculture. And then you have this one thing in the whole mix of it called Ibogaine that, you know, helps someone like you out. And, you know, we bring you on so that hopefully some junkie will hear this and or some junkies family member right um, correct but again i i gotta stress it again you have to do your research please don't go to some dude's basement in idaho you know go to a country where it's legal go to a place where they have actual medical staff on hand uh fly to europe go to mexico do something don't don't be careful in mexico too you know uh, go to a vancouver. real clinic yes go to a real clinic um you're gonna say vancouver you, yeah they but actually last i heard they had all gotten shut down oh really yeah uh you know you've got some in amsterdam and you've got a bunch in mexico um so just do you recommend people go to mexico or I only say that because I I have a, a close relationship with the people who I dealt with. I still talk to most of the people. Are there any clinics that you would personally recommend? And I'm not, you know, I'm just say, stating uh, you personally. I I would search out David Dardashti. Um, he is a, a great guy. He's a very religious guy. Um, but he's down south of cancun um you know you he's not hard to find if you search david dardashti you'll find him i he's the only one i can sit here with an honest face and say he has a legitimate clinic with legitimate medical staff that's there to help people um other than that i mean there's forums you can go to go to these different clinics facebook pages talk to people you know, if you can only get one out of a thousand people to respond, then maybe they're not all real people, you know. Uh, just do your homework. I mean, this, is a, this isn't a small deal. You wouldn't just pick any random brain surgeon. So don't, and that's basically what's going to happen to you. You're going to get brain surgery. It's going to rework your neural pathways. It's not a easy process to go through. It's going to be hard as crap and it needs to be hard. 
Right. Well, and so is living your life as a junkie and wiping out and living homeless in a tent, right? It's hard in different ways. That's harder. The That lifestyle, it just, it's miserable and the misery just compounds and you don't think there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but damn, there really is. You just, uh, maybe you're looking down into the bottom of the tunnel instead of trying to turn around and look up towards the light. So you've been clean for seven years now. You just celebrated your seventh uh, anniversary of being clean, what, about two, three weeks ago? Yep, uh, October 17th. And so uh, what do you have to say to that now, in hindsight of it all? Damn, I'm glad that you went on Joe Rogan's show. (laughs) Uh, You know, I, I never thought that a happy life was attainable. I never thought that I'd find a peaceful life, Uh, but it's there. You just, if what you've been doing hasn't been working, then try making a 180 degree turn and go the other way. Uh, That's what I think. The, the whatever norms just weren't working for me. So. Well, congratulations, David. And, uh, you know, thank you. I'm sure, you know, it. you know, I'm sure your children are the real, uh, celebration and your family and your wife and yeah. own, having your own company and your own house and everything. Now that's something to look back at seven years and say, you know, damn, I got out. Yeah. I'm lucky. I'm fortunate. Um, you I'm can- blessed, whatever you want to say to not be just another number that overdosed. And how close were you, and then we'll wrap it up, but how close were you to sticking a needle in your arm and shooting heroin? Uh, I mean, it was either get sober or start using a needle in heroin because I couldn't afford to keep snorting pills or smoking pills or whatever. Everybody gets to that point, man. Everybody gets to the point where you have to step it up to that last level. And... That last level is pretty much the end, right? I would say so. I mean, how many people's lives have worked out great when you go, hey, I think I'm going to start shooting heroin. Right. It just doesn't go well from there. All right. Well, what can you uh, tell the audience and those listening, any junkies or junkie family members, what's your food for thought for them, your takeaway point from this? uh... If you're a family member, as hard it is it as hard as it is try not to come with anger all the time uh there's something wrong there's something wrong with that person um it might be self-induced i'm not going to argue that with anybody but you gotta i don't i don't know you gotta show them compassion and love and uh figure out what's going to work for them And I will say uh, turning to Suboxone or Methadone is not a solution. That's just a maintenance program. So, you know, try and get them to a long-term facility. Try even just a good therapist can start to make a lot of help. Uh, Being in a positive community, that makes a huge difference. And uh, as far as parents, man, like, your friends will dictate your life. You got to make sure your children really understand that. And I never did understand that. 
you have to be choosy when it comes to your friends. And yeah. look for the signs. There's signs. A lot of people say they never saw the signs that their loved one was going down so bad. I tend to believe more it's they didn't want to see the signs, you know, face those hard truths as a parent or a family member of someone that's struggling with drugs. Yep. And people are telling you congratulations in the chat. Good job. Um, who cares? Says heroin was something you just heard of and didn't see around. Now it seems to be as easy uh, as getting a bottle of booze or a pack of cigs where I live readily available. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty bad, you know, and just lastly, and we'll wrap it up here. What do you think about Trump's push to suppress all of these painkillers and create new laws and try to clean this up? Uh, I think that needs to be done. I think the people that own these pharmaceutical companies that willingly supplied the demand that this country that I'm sorry, but I think a lot of these opiate companies, they need, people need to be going to prison over it. Like you, you see the numbers of pills that were sold. They knew that that wasn't just prescriptions. Um, we got to figure something out different, but at the same time, we got to be careful of the people that are in severe chronic debilitating pain. You know, what do we do for those people if we're going to, tie all doctors hands from being able to help them right and uh, do you want to give out your contact information if anybody wants to reach you yeah my email is ddug82 at gmail.com so it's ddoug82 at gmail.com and uh, feel free to hit me up if you have questions or concerns or anything. You know, I'll I'll answer questions to the best of my ability. And now they'll be reaching out to you instead of to me this time. So, <laughs> well, I hope I can return the favor and help save somebody's life, even if it's just one person's. It's worth it. Likewise, and ladies and gentlemen, please support the show, logosmedia.com, or hit the super chat there or the uh, Patreon button. Once again, logosmedia.com. Can't do it without your support. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. And uh, let's see, people are uh, really appreciating your show tonight, David. Uh, they say, cool guest, great show as always. You know, this is a very different show than I've ever done. I've never done a show about, you know, somebody who's been impacted like this and, you know, come full, cir full circle years later. So... Glad to have you on. Much appreciated. And, uh, you know, you, what were you going to say? Uh, just thanks for having me. And, you know, I know your life has changed, but I'm so grateful that you were the way you were and helped push me towards what my life has become. Right. Well, and, and for those who are still caught in the Grateful Dead and psychedelics, check out the other 200 plus shows I've done exposing all of that and read the articles on my website and get your mind around what it really is and was. Thanks so much, David. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen in the audience. And uh, like I said, this was the first simulcast we've done all over the place. And we'll see you soon, and good night.